At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. The show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Tuesday, October 25th, 2022. It's been 3,162 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27th, 2014, and 243 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we assess the Russian offensive on Solidar and Bakhmut, led by the private military company Wagner Group, is floundering. Second, we maintain that Russia's accusation that Ukraine is preparing to use an improvised nuclear weapon is meant to be a disinformation campaign meant to sow fear and division, and an attempt to discredit the Ukrainian government. Third, We maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative, forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture. Fourth, we maintain that Russian forces in Belarus have become a credible threat and that an invasion of western Ukraine is increasingly likely in the next 45 to 75 days. Fifth, we maintain our assessment that Russian forces are engaged in a withdrawal from Kherson, which will likely continue over the next four to eight weeks despite the GUR statement from Ukraine. Sixth, we maintain that Russian terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure will continue unabated for the foreseeable future until the electrical grid in Ukraine is completely destroyed, and that wide-scale attacks with drones will continue. Seventh, We maintain that the Russian mobilization of up to 300,000 troops will have little impact on the battlefield due to poor morale and discipline and a lack of equipment among Mobics. And the ongoing terror attacks support that Russia's military strategy in Ukraine has failed. And finally, we maintain that the threat of tactical nuclear weapons being used on the battlefield has become extremely remote. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. Neither belligerent reported significant verifiable fighting, and there continues to be little information in the social intelligence space due to a lack of internet service and spotty cellular coverage. 
Russian sources reported fighting in Borosensk and Piatikhatki. The Russian Ministry of Defense claimed Russian troops advanced on Trifonivka, while the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported the settlement was shelled. So we expanded the area of uncertainty based on the reports. The GSAFU also reported that Pravdine and Temnovi Podi were shelled. Russian sources did not report any fighting or advance northwest or west of Kherson. Kirillo Butinov, head of the main intelligence directorate of the Ministry of Defense of Ukraine, or GUR, claims that Russian forces are only, quote, creating the illusion of a withdrawal while they continue to move troops west of the Dnipro at Novakakhovka. Butinov acknowledged that Russian occupiers and their collaborators were emptying the hospitals, transferring the most critically wounded to the east bank of the Dnipro, closing government offices, banks, and taking computers and records with them. However, he added, quote, At the same time, on the contrary, they are bringing in new military units there and preparing the streets of the city for defense. End quote. The head of the GUR implied that Russian forces had been somewhat emboldened after creating a crossing at Novakhovka by filling in the spillway with gravel to create an earthen bridge. Some assessment here. If Russian forces are using the Novakhovka Dam as a critical ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line, crossing, it seems highly unlikely they would blow up their own lifeline. We're reluctant to go against the GUR, but both belligerents have been engaged in an intense information war on the ongoing situation in Kherson. Russian forces were reinforcing Kherson with checkpoints, check hedgehogs, and massive defenses in the surrounding town— particularly Chornobaevka, which has been turned into a fortress. Withdrawing medical resources and patience is not the action of belligerents planning to stay in place. On the same day, Operational Command South, or OCS, claimed that Russian troops would not be able to hold the right bank, quote, for a long time, and would need to build more defensive lines. However, they added that Russian troops might prepare, quote, provocations, in the city of Kherson to delay the overall withdrawal. OCS also reported that Russian forces launched two separate attacks of platoon-sized forces that were unsuccessful, but much to my chagrin did not provide information on where. Russian-occupied Novakhovka was hit by rockets fired by HIMARS, with a video showing at least three impacts at the Elektromashino-Budivnyi plant which is used as a Russian barracks and staging area. Chechen troops in Kairi, on the east bank of the Dnipro, felt safe, secure, and eager to make TikTok videos, which provided the geolocation of the school they turned into a barracks. You know where this is going. The base was hit by rockets fired by HIMARS, with another video then of dust-covered bloody Chechens thanking God for being hit by HIMARS. It is reported that up to 40 were killed and another 60 wounded. All right, assessment, let's talk about this. What have they learned? Nothing. They have learned absolutely nothing, because they are still making videos revealing their location after almost nine months of war. Three Russian Ka-52 alligator attack helicopters were shot down over the Kherson Oblast, two of them only 30 minutes apart. Lieutenant Colonel Vladimir Stelchenko, deputy commander of the 487th Airborne Regiment for Fight Training, was killed when one of the helicopters was shot down. 
He was one of four Russian lieutenant colonels confirmed killed in action in the last 24 hours. OCS did not provide information on airstrikes, with ground forces carrying out 246 fire missions. Ukrainian forces renewed suppress and destroy enemy air defense activity, targeting five Russian air defense installations and reporting the destruction of a Russian ammunition depot in the Bereslav Rayon. Also in Bereslav, pictures emerged of a destroyed Russian 2S7 203mm self-propelled gun, or SPG, and its supporting supply truck. Assessment here. Destroyed and captured artillery pieces photographed by Ukrainian forces indicates that advances are happening. In the photo, the wreckage was still smoldering, indicating this equipment was recently destroyed as part of an ongoing offensive. Sidebar for a vocabulary word. A rayon is similar to a county or a parish. Members of the Ukrainian 28th Mechanized Brigade shot down a Shahed-131 loitering drone, a much smaller version of the Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drone. The drone was recovered mostly intact and will be analyzed to confirm that it was sourced from Iran. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporizhia. There was no change in the situation at Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and no update on the three kidnapped Enerhoatom employees. The deputy minister of foreign affairs of Russia, Sergei Rybkov, said that Moscow was open to creating a demilitarized zone around ZNPP, but that demilitarization of the plant itself was, quote, impossible. The International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, didn't make a specific response to the Kremlin's statement. IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi has said he believes a deal can be cut by the end of the year. Valentin Reznichenko, Dnipropetrovsk Oblast Administrative and Military Governor, reported that Nikopol, Maksimivka, and Marchanets were attacked by Grad rockets fired by Multiple Launch Rocket Systems, or MLRS, and Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drones. The attack targeted critical civilian infrastructure, including a food processing plant and the regional water supply. Russian and Ukrainian forces conducted artillery duels from the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border to Hulyapola to Orikhiv to Stepova. A massive car bomb exploded in Melitopol near the offices of the TV and terrestrial radio company, causing heavy damage to the offices. At the time of recording, there wasn't information on casualties or if TV services had been knocked out. Local residents in Svetlodolinsk reported seven explosions near a railroad bridge by the village. Smoke and fire were visible after the blast. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southwestern Donetsk. The Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, Militia Public Relations Channel released several videos to support recent combat claims. They reported the 1st Army Corps destroyed one tank, a 120mm mortar, and four armored vehicles. Ukrainian forces carried out 274 fire missions on the occupied territory, with both belligerents maintaining increased artillery fire along the front. A video showed Ukrainian forces suffering heavy losses in an advance near Opitne that went all wrong. Two infantry fighting vehicles were destroyed by anti-tank mines, 
while at least two more were hit by artillery fire. Ukrainian troops in the vehicles were then caught in the open terrain and were pulverized by artillery. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian positions in Opitne were shelled, supporting that this incident happened in the last 24 to 48 hours. A quick error and omissions related to our map. In an earlier report, we noted that Russian forces had advanced north of Pisky to the E-50 ring road and updated our war map to reflect the Russian advance based on geolocation information. Well, there was apparently a glitch in the matrix, and whatever spirit inhabits Google reverted the edit to the map. We have fixed the discrepancy, and we thank you for your understanding. Russian forces shelled and launched airstrikes on Ukrainian positions in Pervomaisky. Elements of the 1st Army Corps continued their attempts to advance on the Ukrainian firebase at Nevelsky, but the unforgiving open terrain enabled Ukrainian forces to inflict heavy casualties. There continued to be pockets of fighting in the eastern areas of Marinka, with the DNR perpetually unable to move the line of conflict. Power outages continued to expand in the occupied territories, with another 50% increase in households without power in Donetsk. Because the Ukrainian electrical grid is interconnected with Russia and the occupied regions, 7,750 households in the area were without power yesterday. In northeast Donetsk, Russian mill bloggers partially admitted territorial losses east of Bakhmut and Solidar. Ridovka had an amusing take, declaring, quote, Wagner attack aircraft are moving forward within the boundaries of Bakhmut and Solidar. End quote. So, I have questions. Chiefly, does that mean that they are rolling attack aircraft on the ground into Bakhmut and Solidar? Or was this an attempt to spin that airstrikes equal a ground advance? Rybar had a more sober take, reporting that Ukrainian forces were working to push private military company or PMC Wagner Group back to the E-40 highway and out of the, quote, asphalt plant. Okay, if Rybar is trying to spin that Wagner is still in the building materials factory, that ship has sailed. Ukrainian forces retook the factory east of Bakhmut. Mutual combat is happening east of Solidar and southeast of Bakhmut, with Russian proxy forces increasingly on the defensive. South of Bakhmut, PMC Wagner is suffering unsustainable losses around Ivangrad, with reports of the outskirts of Opitne covered in the corpses of Russian mercenaries. Russian proxy forces continued unsuccessful advances on Klishaivka as they continued their attempts to flank Ukrainian positions. Assessment time. It is too early to declare that the tide has turned around Bakhmut. The destruction of PMC Wagner troop concentrations and ammo depots in late September around Svitlodarsk had a significant impact on combat operations around Bakhmut and Solidar. The use of ill-trained penal units recruited from prison has only served to slow the advances back to previously held defensive positions. With each passing week, Wagner is losing experienced mercenaries that are irreplaceable in the short and medium term due to the partial mobilization and stop-loss orders by the Russian Ministry of Defense and the overall losses Russian forces have suffered. Previously, Wagner could recruit experienced Russian soldiers rotating out of Syria to fill their ranks. Many Russian troops who have left Ukraine have no desire to return, regardless of the paycheck. 
Fighting is increasing west of Lysychansk. Russian and Ukrainian forces were mutual combatants east of Verkhnokomyanskia, with control of Zolotarivka in Luhansk contested. Russian forces attempted once again to advance on Spirne. The first attempt, if you remember, was on June 29th. The village is a wasteland that changed control several times in July. Ukraine has been able to hold the village since early August. The GSAFU reported that the hamlet of Novosadov on the Donetsk-Luhansk administrative border and the east bank of the Zherebets River was liberated. The Ukrainian government does not announce the liberation of settlements until they have established fire control over the area. The Russian Ministry of Defense confirmed that Ukrainian forces had advanced further east after forcing the Zherebets and establishing military control. Russian mill bloggers claim that Ukrainian forces are building up in Serebryanka in preparation for a larger offensive. Our assessment? The Ukrainian advance has slowed in this area due to the arrival of poorly trained Mobics. The ill-equipped units are a case study of quantity over quality, with a significant number of raw recruits providing resistance, but unable to hold defensive lines. In Luhansk, Ukrainian forces crossed the Zherebets River, liberating several settlements, including Nevske and Karmazinivka. Further north, at the Luhansk-Kharkiv administrative border, Miaso-Zharivka was liberated. Ukrainian forces are now 12 kilometers west of Svatov, and only 4 kilometers from the P-66 Highway G-Lock, ground line of communication, remember that's a supply line, that connects Svatov to Kremina. Based on these advances, we have coded Tverdokhilbove as liberated and Novoyehorivka as contested. In a quiet admission that Russian forces have lost control of the east bank of the Zherebets, the Russian Ministry of Defense reported that Ukrainian forces attacked Chervenopopivka. The Russian MOD claimed the attack involved 400 Ukrainian troops who suffered 20 casualties. The attack was unsuccessful, but it indicates Ukraine has taken control of the forested regions east of Terny and Torske in the Donetsk Oblast. That means Ukrainian forces are now 8 kilometers northwest of Kremina and almost to the P-66 Highway G-Lock. Let's pause for some assessment here. Ukrainian forces won't force a head-on attack on Svatov or Kremina and will opt to force a retreat by threatening encirclement instead. We can't assess where Ukrainian forces will attempt to break through, but the loss of the P-66 Highway G-Lock will be a critical blow to the Russian defense of Kremina. Mutual fighting east of Bilohorivka continued with no change in the overall situation. Some more assessment here. Ukrainian forces are making slow but steady progress in Tuluhansk. Pro-Russian mill blogger Rybar reported that Russian-occupied Starobilsk, Zorinsk, Zolote and Bilokurakne were attacked with rockets fired by HIMARS. The mill blogger also reported that Krasnorichenske was hit with rockets, but it may have been an MLRS strike. Social media shared pictures and videos of a massive fire near the coal mine in Yuvelene, a suburb of Luhansk. The fire was intense enough to appear on NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, and could be seen more than 10 kilometers away. Occupation officials report that the fire was caused by an industrial accident. 
Construction of the so-called Wagner Line continued near Zolote and now stretches 12.5 kilometers. The construction includes two rows of half-height concrete dragon's teeth and a trench meant to be an obstacle for armored vehicles. Just a quick note here, the new fortifications are called the Wagner Line because PMC Wagner is behind its construction. Sergei Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that Wagner is struggling to hire operators for bulldozers, excavators, and other construction equipment. Can't see why it's not like occupational hazards include rocket attacks by HIMARS, airstrikes, blistering cold weather with no supplies, becoming a prisoner of war, and aggressive Chechen troops. Oh, well... All right, let's talk about it. This is assessment here. It is ironic that after force-mobilizing the men of Luhansk, including forcibly taking away coal miners, steel mill operators, and construction workers, the Russian MOD and their proxies are struggling to find heavy equipment operators. Even all of that aside, we maintain that the construction of the defensive line partially along the Minsk II border does not inspire confidence in Russia's ability to defend the Luhansk Oblast. It is highly unlikely construction will reach Lysychansk before Ukrainian troops do, even at the currently slow pace of the ongoing advance. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Moving on to the Kharkiv region. The Russian MOD claimed Ukrainian forces attempt to advance on Orlyanske and Pershutravnieve, but were unsuccessful. The Kremlin also claimed that Ukrainian forces tried to advance on Berestova. Our analysts are somewhat skeptical, with the settlement previously coded as liberated. Based on the Russian MOD report, though, we've recoded Berestova as contested, but did not move the line of conflict. In the Cherniv and Sumy region... Dmitro Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that Romadas of Shalekhin, Velika Pisarivka, and Seredina Buda were fired on by Russian troops from across the international border. Mortars and artillery shells were used, with a drone dropping an improvised explosive device on Velika Pisarivka. There wasn't any significant damage or injuries reported. There was a border skirmish near Yunakivka with a brief exchange of small arms fire with the Territorial Guard. In the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, Russian submarines operating in the Black Sea have returned to port after taking part in the missile strikes against Ukraine last week. The submarines have likely exhausted their supply of weapons and need to be reloaded. Two ships capable of launching caliber cruise missiles remain at sea with a combined capacity of 16 missiles. These sub-launched missiles are harder to detect, but are more complicated to reload. On the Russian front in the Bryansk region, railroad tracks that connect Belarus to Russia were destroyed by a bomb between Novozybkov and Zlinka. Our assessment that the NOTAM, or Notice to Air Missions, over the Kara Sea was not indicative of a looming undersea or underground nuclear test by the Russian Federation was accurate. It was likely related to live-fire naval exercises that had been previously announced. 
Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. After Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu's accusations that Ukraine was preparing to detonate an improvised nuclear weapon, also known as a dirty bomb, Defense Minister Alexei Reznikov invoked Paragraph 4 of the Budapest Memorandum. The 1994 agreement provided specific protections for Ukraine in exchange for giving up its nuclear weapons arsenal after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Paragraph 4 of the Budapest Memorandum states that the signatories reaffirm their commitment to seek immediate UN Security Council action to assist Ukraine as a non-nuclear weapon state party to the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, or NPT, if Ukraine should become a victim of an act of aggression or an object of a threat of aggression in which nuclear weapons are used. The IAEA reported they were aware of the Russian allegations of activity at two locations in Ukraine. Director General Grossi reported that one location had been inspected less than a month ago, and Ukrainian officials have already agreed to re-inspection and a visit to the second location. The agency stated in a press release, quote, The IAEA is preparing to visit the locations in the coming days. The purpose of the safeguards visits is to detect any possible undeclared nuclear activities and materials. End quote. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba thanked the IAEA for the quick response, writing on Twitter, quote, IAEA experts are expected to arrive shortly and prove Ukraine has neither any dirty bombs nor plans to develop them. Good cooperation with IAEA and partners allows us to foil Russia's dirty bomb disinformation campaign. End quote. Russian Foreign Ministry spokesperson Maria Zakharova made a baseless claim that dirty bombs are being assembled in Kyiv and another location in central Ukraine. Previously, Russia insisted that Ukraine had a nuclear weapons program at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and has never presented any evidence to support the claim or shared information about equipment such as high-speed centrifuges for processing radioactive isotopes being present. So, once again, it's been zero days since Russia threatened to use nuclear weapons. Vasily Alexeyevich Nebenzia, the Russian ambassador to the United Nations, told UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres and the Security Council that the Russian government considers the use of a dirty bomb as a nuclear first strike that could result in a direct response. United States officials reiterated they saw no indications that Russia was preparing to use nuclear weapons. The United States, United Kingdom, and France issued a joint statement dismissing the Russian claims, saying, quote, Our countries made clear that we all reject Russia's transparently false allegations that Ukraine is preparing to use a dirty bomb on its own territory. End quote. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg wrote that he had spoken with the U.S. Secretary of Defense and the U.K. Minister of Defense about, quote, Russia's false claim that Ukraine is preparing to use a dirty bomb on its territory, end quote. He added, quote, NATO allies reject this allegation. Russia must not use it as a pretext for escalation. We remain steadfast in our support of Ukraine, end quote. Valery Gerasimov, chief of the general staff of the Russian Federation, removed his invisibility cloak to speak with his counterpart, Tony Radikin of the UK, and doubled down on the claim that Ukraine had a dirty bomb. Gerasimov made an identical call to his US counterpart, the third such call the Kremlin has made to the Pentagon in the last week. 
Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov tripled down on the claim and said the issue would be discussed with the UN Security Council this week. Our assessment? With the Kremlin unable to use the ZNPP as a nuclear threat and bargaining chip, this is their newly manufactured crisis du jour to consume the new cycle and try to create division among nations and politicians supporting Ukraine. This is a cynical attempt to influence the United States' midterm elections under the fear of nuclear war, inflame Americans indoctrinated in Russian propaganda, and create political divides. It is not a pretext to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine or on its allies. It could, however, be a pretext for further escalation of missile and drone strikes to terrorize the Ukrainian population. This is worth repeating. If you're worried... That's exactly what the Kremlin wants. What Moscow doesn't want in the news cycle is that they are losing in Ukraine. Badly. Russia is losing badly after its misguided and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine and cannot reverse the situation. Don't worry about us. Since the RIA banned our website on March 23rd anyway, what are they going to do? Nuke malcontent news? Okay, you know what? Never mind. Let's not give anyone ideas. We're not putting that out into the universe. Moving on. Belarus announced it had ordered its troops and military equipment to return to their bases after strengthening border defenses. Andriy Demchenko, the spokesperson for the State Border Guard Service of Ukraine, called shenanigans, saying, quote, There is no change in this situation at the border with the Republic of Belarus. The situation remains under control. We continue to record the same number of military units of the Republic of Belarus still on the border with our country, which changes on a rotational basis. There is also no change in the nature of their actions. End quote. Reuters reported that the United States is considering sending Hawk air defense missile systems to Ukraine. The Hawk was the predecessor to the Patriot missile system and was initially developed in the 1960s. The system went through numerous upgrades as recently as 2021. The missile system is in storage, with the United States having other, more modern systems deployed. The United States President Joe Biden could draw down the weapon system out of storage, and it is reported there are, quote, many available. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky dismissed Mykola Zhirnov as the Kyiv city military administrative leader, and replaced them with Colonel General Sergei Popko. No reason was given for the change of commanders, which is not likely related to recent Russian drone and missile attacks. Russia may be getting more drones from Iran. The Mirage 521. The Kamikaze drone is between the size of the United States Switchblade 300 and 600. The drone has a range of up to 5 kilometers and has a warhead between 500 and 1,000 grams. That's 1.1 to 2.2 pounds. Speaking of drones, let's talk about Russian mobilization. The Kremlin reported they were preparing their forces to operate in a seaburn environment if Ukraine deploys a dirty bomb, further fueling the big lie. Just a reminder, that's CBRN for chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear. Russian investigators have concluded the plane crash in Irkutsk was caused by the aircrew fainting. A second Su-30 operating during the same test flight observed that the pilots were motionless and unresponsive. The plane flew until it ran out of fuel and crashed. 
Russian investigators believe that nitrogen used to purge the oxygen tanks remained, causing the air crew to lose consciousness. The investigative committee of Russia is considering two options, the ground crew making a mistake or an equipment failure. Russian state media reported that occupation authorities in Kherson are giving the men who remain in the region the, quote, option of joining the territorial defense. Oh, tempting, I'm sure. In Moscow, the commissariat offices may be closed, and the organized raids of apartment buildings, subways, and businesses may be over, but mobilization isn't. Local media has been ordered not to discuss mobilization, while people still receive orders to report from military duty in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Dmitry Medvedev, deputy chairman of Russia's Security Council, sporting a slightly more stylish black leather coat than Albert Speer wore when he toured German armaments factories in the 1940s, asserted that Russia is definitely not running out of weapons. Medvedev was touring the Urlwagonzavod tank factory, where Russia has embarked on a three-year program to upgrade 800 T-62 tanks designed in the 1950s and produced from 1961 to 1973. He declared that Russian weapons production has increased, quote, manifold across the board from tanks, guns, and missiles, and told the world, quote, just you wait and see, end quote. That does not sound at all like the villain in a movie. Apparently, that increased weapon production does not include body armor or helmets. According to the GUR, Russia has signed a contract to buy 3,000 pieces of body armor, 1,500 plate receivers, and 1,500 helmets from Iran. This is in addition to the Shahed-131 and 136 drones already fielded, and a new contract for Arash-2 combat drones. Russia may be out of qualified staff to train the fresh Mobix. As early as April, the Kremlin started deploying staff from military academies and training locations into Ukraine. Now, due to a lack of training staff that is still vertical, and the huge number of people that need military training, Russian officials are turning Mobix with prior military training into instructors. In the Republic of Altai, accusations that Moscow is committing genocide against the ethnic Altaians are flying. Feeble protests have erupted after it was revealed that 90% of the men conscripted are Altaians. All is going to plan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is very minor graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. A graphic video showed a civilian was killed in Bakhmut due to Russian shelling. The man's body was lying in the street after a barrage. About 90% of the civilian population evacuated from Bakhmut, with those remaining too poor, sick, or stubborn to evacuate, and workers for critical infrastructure such as fire, water, sewer, and electrical utilities. Anton Krasovsky has opened up the United States Book of Excuses for saying something awful on television, which he did when he called for drowning and burning Ukrainian children alive. He's blaming the devil. Under fire for saying the quiet part aloud, Krasovsky wrote, quote, I am on this broadcast dozens of times a month, and from time to time, 
The demon sitting on one of my shoulders can take me too far, as Dostoevsky wrote. And that's one of the times he took me too far. Sometimes I try to decide whose life is more important, more necessary, and more correct. I'm an idiot. End quote. Just to be abundantly clear, okay? He said it, not me. The Ukrainian Red Cross is calling on the International Red Cross and the Red Crescent Movement to take, quote, strict measures against the Russian Red Cross for violating the organization's neutrality requirements. The Red Cross in Russia is supporting the We Stand Together movement and actively fundraising for military families. It is critical to point out that the International Committee of the Red Cross and the Red Cross Society in Ukraine are not affiliated with the Russian Red Cross. In geopolitical news, Frank Steinmeier, president of Germany, arrived in Kiev. He was supposed to visit last week but delayed his trip due to the ongoing missile attacks by Russia. President Steinmeier and President Zelensky will make a joint address to German cities and municipalities with a call to establish new partnerships with Ukrainian municipalities to help the people living there get through the winter. In Moldova, the Moldovan government and the breakaway Republic of Transnistria have not been able to pay their natural gas obligations to Russia. Gazprom slashed gas deliveries by another 30% to both areas, increasing an ongoing energy crisis. In Transnistria, steel and concrete production was shut down to conserve electricity, the two main sources of income for the republic. The new gas cuts reduced power output at the Moldgras power plant in Transnistria from 70% of capacity to 27%. Moldova and Transnistria shared power from the plant in a complicated relationship, and Russia's gas cutbacks have caused blackouts for both. Gazprom announced they would cut natural gas deliveries by another 40% on November 1st, impacting Moldova and the Kremlin ally Transnistria. Moldova is buying electricity from Romania, but there isn't enough capacity to fill the gap. Transnistria has coal reserves, but their leaders have said they won't dip into the supply unless the gas supply drops to zero. Moldovan President Maya Sandu is facing another crisis, with Kremlin-fueled anti-government protests over inflation and the energy crisis. Thousands gathered in Chisinau near Parliament for the seventh week in a row. The protests are being fueled by Kremlin-aligned exiled opposition politician Elon Shore, who was convicted in a $1 billion banking fraud scheme. Shore spoke with protesters from Israel and demanded Sandu resign and early elections be held. Thirty liberal Democrats of the United States Congress penned a letter calling for a negotiated settlement to the war in Ukraine that assures Ukraine's sovereignty and ends hostility. The letter read, in part, quote, Given the destruction created by this war for Ukraine and the world, as well as the risk of catastrophic escalation, we also believe it is in the interests of Ukraine, the United States, and the world to avoid a prolonged conflict. End quote. The letter was led by Representative Pramila Jayapal of Washington, who chairs the Congressional Progressive Caucus. When asked to respond to the letter, United States State Department spokesperson Ned Price said, quote, We have heard from Ukrainian partners repeatedly that this war will only end through diplomacy and dialogue. 
We have not heard any reciprocal statement or refrain from Moscow that they are ready in good faith to engage in that diplomacy and dialogue. End quote. Some assessment here? Apparently, the Kremlin disinformation campaign about dirty bombs is working. In economic news, the ruble was unchanged, with the exchange rate at 62 for one U.S. dollar. Oil was mixed, with WTI falling to $83 a barrel and Brent holding at $92. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline on the spot market climbed to $2.68 a gallon, or $0.71 a liter. EU Dutch TTF natural gas futures continued its decline, dropping to €98 per megawatt hour for November 2022 contracts. Chicago SRW wheat futures also dropped, trading at $8.31 per bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.